Well, welcome everybody to the latest edition of Infection Control Matters. Uh, Brett Mitchell here, and Martin's joining me today. G'day, Martin. Hello, Martin. Or even Brett. I don't even know why I'm Brett. That. I don't even know who I am after all <laughs> these years. No, um, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to our chat today, Martin. We've got two special guests with us. Um, Dr. Aileen Wolfensberger is a medical doctor, and she joined the Department of Infectious Diseases and Hospital Epidemiology in the University Hospital Zurich in 2012, and has got a particular interest in um, pneumonia and non-ventilated pneumonia at that. Welcome, um, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. Good morning. And we also have Professor Hugo Sachs. He's an infectious diseases physician in Switzerland as well. And um, he's been a leader in infection prevention and control for a couple of decades. And uh, his area of interest and research often focuses on the systems approach to um, infection prevention control and using um, human factors engineering and data science and innovation. Welcome, Hugo. Great to be here. Thank you. We were just chatting before we started recording and I said how much I'm looking forward to this discussion today. And the discussion today is on a paper that has just been recently published in The Lancet Infectious Disease and it's called Prevention of Non-Ventilator-Associated Hospital-Acquired Pneumonia in Switzerland, a Type 2 Hybrid Effectiveness Implementation Trial. Long title, but nonetheless a fantastic piece of work. We don't see much work and these types of trials in the area of um, HAP or non-ventilator-associated pneumonia. And um, it's great that you've managed to do this piece of work. Before, before we sort of get into the, the paper itself and a bit of what you did, did you want to start off Alan, by just talking to us about where did you get interested in this topic of hospital-acquired pneumonia? So since 2013, we in the University Hospital in Zurich, we did yearly point prevalence surveys. So at one day in the year, we looked at who has a um, healthcare-acquired um, infection and what kind of infection was that. And we, since that year, like probably um, many other hospitals, we knew that surgical site infections and urinary tract infections are common in our um, hospital. But we also saw that pneumonia was always on the first or the second place of the most common um, HAIs. And we also saw that more than half, mostly two thirds of all um, pneumonia were non-ventilator associated. So that was the time that we realized that we should probably invest in prevention of this kind of HAI. I'm smirking here whilst we're on this call because and Martin's smirking back at me because I'm smirking, yeah. we've we've discussed many a time that um, point prevalence studies done across Europe and Australia and the US have often shown pneumonia and UTIs and uh, perhaps SSIs as the most common infections acquired in healthcare or hospital settings and yet not a lot often gets done about pneumonia and so it's really refreshing um, to hear that you've used the, the point prevalence data as a way to think about what interventions you might want to think about to prevent pneumonia. Yeah, I really love this moment when you when you discover something that's actually hidden in plain sight. And we, we just <laughs> exactly, you yeah. know saw this <laughs> this this uh, cake graph and and the proportion of. Uh, 
pneumonia and then uh, discovered that half of them are really not ventilator associated which which was you know taking all our our concentration our focus in the past mm-hmm. i can remember being in an ICPIC meeting a number of years ago now and i can't remember who it was they were presenting the results of uh, the ecdc point prevalence survey around at that time and pneumonia was the number one so when it came to questions i said uh, okay so what's the action and everyone's looking side to side <laughs> and there wasn't any and no national guideline appears anywhere in the world and no there are no national interventions so it's just really good to see an organization looking at its own data and saying right we need to do something about this in a really well you know run study so that's fantastic mm-hmm. honestly i'm so pleased with this so um Hugo, your study um this was a sort of single centered uh, implementation study done in, in nine wards in, in Zurich. Um, do you just want to briefly just tell us a little bit about the design itself and, and why why you decided to do use that type of approach? So the study design we used? The study design, yeah. The study experimental design. Yeah. design. Um, we used the stepwatch study, um, mm. non-randomised. Initially we planned or we thought about can we randomise the start of the um, implementation of the nine departments, but we quickly realized that in this real life study, this was not feasible. So um, the whole study, maybe I can talk a bit about that, took place in within a hospital-wide initiative to lower um, HAIs. Mm-hmm. Um, and prevention of pneumonia was um, one of the elements. We've targeted also other hospital-acquired infections. And in these nine departments where pneumonia was um, a a problem or who had above average um, numbers of pneumonia, so these nine departments invested in pneumonia prevention and they had to be ready to start the implementation. So we, if they were not ready, we, I think we would not have been that successful. So we let them choose the start of the implementation and that's why we had a non-randomized start of the stepped wedge study. It was on my mind. I wondered what the reason was for, for that non-randomization approach given you to that great effort of the of the sort of step wedge design and that, that makes sense given the type of implementation style um design that you are really wanting to achieve an engagement with with people um before we can sort of get into the ins and outs of the study in terms of what you did um what was the what was the intervention that you were really focused on what were you hoping to improve or change as part of the the intervention so the prevention bundle consisted of five prevention measures which were oral care dysphagia screening and management of dysphagia in, in patients, mobilization, um, stopping non-indicated proton pump inhibitors and respiratory therapy. So these were the five main prevention measures and there um, was an overarching implementation strategy that we applied. We had our team, so the hospital hygiene team of our department. We were three people um, who were mainly responsible for implementation. This was a study nurse, 
uh, an implementation scientist, Professor Clack, and also um, me as a physician. And on the other hand, of the, on the, all of the nine departments, we had also three people, a physician, a nurse, and the physiotherapist who were engaged in, in implementing this, this bundle in their department. The important thing was that we uh, we wanted the departments to be independent and in charge of the of the implementation. So the the that was an important idea that they take ownership of uh, and have the occasion of adapting uh, the the implementation strategy to their needs. We might delve into that a little bit more in a minute. Um, just on the components of the intervention, the components of the bundle. A couple of things struck me. One was about oral care and the other was about proton pump inhibitors. With oral care, I noticed that sort of the target was to try and get to once a day oral care provision. Was there any reason why that was particularly chosen? Um, was, did you see that as being feasible or what, what, was the, what were the reasons for that sort of number? I mean, everything was kind of pragmatic in this um, study or project, and that was also a pragmatic approach. We thought, or we and the dentist, who also was in our team counseling us about best um, um, measures to choose, he and we thought that once a day well done is better than twice or three times a day not well done. And mm -hmm. so we chose to go for once a day in all of the patients, and that's, I think, still really important is the three times a day for patients who have a swallowing, swallowing difficulties. So. Mm -hmm. and, the dis and the proton pump inhibitor component of the intervention, what was the rationale for that? Yes, so we knew from studies that some studies show an association of proton pump inhibitors with pneumonia, others don't. Um, we still included this measure as a prevention measure because we thought it can't be wrong um, to to reduce PPI. So if we maybe don't have a large effect on pneumonia, we um, prevent um, administration of medication that is not necessary or may have other um, side effects. And also important was that we wanted to engage all three professions, so nurses, um, therapists and physicians, and this was clearly a physician-centered um, prevention measure, and it was important for us to engage them too, and so we kept this bundle element in, even though we knew that it might not have a large effect on, on pneumonia. There is the systems thinking uh, approach of implementation that it's not maybe a direct effect, but there is an indirect effect of having everyone on board uh, in this in this endeavor. Um, they're much more likely to be engaged, aren't they? Because many of the other measures are quite nurse focused. So, if we take, for example, the oral care, that's almost a bundle within a bundle, isn't it? It's making sure you, at least you're going to get your mouth um, attended to once a day, but also somebody's got to do the assessment. To determine whether you have gingivitis or and you maybe would need the chlorhexidine so did you how much training did you have to do with the nurses to bring them up to speed with oral care because i know from a study from mark garvey that i was involved in last year they um they actually put a dental nurse 
on a unit, on some units, to actually teach all the staff about oral care because you'd think that was fairly intuitive, but it turns out it's not, and they learnt a lot. So can you talk about the education needed to actually bring everybody up to speed beforehand? And then I'd also like to know, what do you have any idea what oral care was like pre-intervention? In other words, how many people weren't getting their mouth attended to even once a day? And what proportion were actually needing the chlorhexidine as well? What was done exactly in the top departments really depended on the departments and some invested a lot in oral care education. They Some invited a, a dentist to do training for, for a large uh, nurse group and others focused on small group training and so on. So at that time also um, there was a oral care um standard operating procedure published in our hospital and this got was a bit kind of hand in hand going with our on we were lucky on that side and yes so training and education was really depending on what was the need of the departments and that differed a lot some departments were already quite good and others needed more more education and the second question was about Sorry, I forgot it. I'm just wondering how much um, oral care was going on pre-intervention in your baseline period. What proportion of patients weren't getting oral care at all? So that's a difficult question to answer. So we uh, tried to monitor um, adherence to prevention measures in two ways. We we had these 50 patients that we... um, looked at a bit more in detail four times during the study uh, period before intervention and three times after implementation started. And there we um, looked first in the medical records and see if there was an oral care um, episode documented. If not, we went to visit this patient and ask if he or somebody brushed his teeth. So if... if um, normally, if a nurse brushes the teeth of a patient, she documents it normally but not always and um, <laughs> so worse. we tried to find that out and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> adherence was or um, to the oral care prevention measure was already quite high mm-hmm. before start of the, uh, the intervention. I, I really like those questions Martin because we're, we're sort of about to well we're sort of 12 months away but embarking on an RCT here in Australia to prevent um, multi-center RCT to prevent um, pneumonia. And um, the key focus of this is going to be improving oral care. And one of the things we're really trying to think about is how do we capture these data about how frequently oral care is conducted without biasing the intervention phase by um, inadvertently talking about and um, inadvertently putting in an intervention, at least influencing um, the, the potential outcome by talking about oral care in the control phase. So I did like that convenient sample approach that you use because I think that would help reduce that bias. Is that one of the reasons why you, you sort of took that approach to, to try and reduce the risk of bias of affecting the, the primary outcome? Yeah, so the, you're, you're addressing the step wedge design, mm. I, I guess, here. This is really coming from uh, public health uh, research in, and intervention that you want to, everyone has the hope to get uh, the perspective to get included. So the, the control, uh, 
the people who have not yet the intervention then ha don't have so much an inclination to look over the fence and see what the others do <laughs> that have the intervention because they kind of in an RCT where you have controls all along, they they despair. They think they're left out. And so this is one of the advantages. The other advantage is that you have an intervention uh, period in uh, in some of the um, groups um, in parallel to have the control over time. And so this this uh, gives the opportunity to calculate if there is an influence over time that's not attributable to the intervention. Mm. Could you tell us a bit about the mobilization part of the intervention? You know, how, how did that differ from what was standard care, if you like, or usual care? And how did you get people on board with that? So in mobilization, we ask for um, mobilization twice a day. Um out of the bed, ideally, or at the bedside in patients who cannot really leave the bed. Um, actually, that's more or less usual care. It's not that usually. <laughs> okay. um, we all know that patients are ideally mobilized, and but still what we know from reality that is that mobilization is sometimes very time intensive and um, is left out if there are not um, if there is a lot to yeah. do on board. It's staff intensive, so, isn't it? Yeah, mm. exactly. So um, here we um, had this minimum of two times a day, and we really just tried to educate about the importance of mobilization, why it is important, why it can prevent pneumonia, and of course also other other. Um, side effects of a hospitalization so it was not much more than usual care but it was uh, that we wanted to increase adherence to this usual care mm. or at least know that it's happening i mean the patients who weren't getting out of bed were they doing anything like passive limb movements or anything like that to try and um, get the large yes. muscle groups moving mm. yeah if if not possible that the patient moves out of the bed of course it's passive movement or um um, patient positioning in the bed. That was a learning we had from our study that this might be um, a bundle element that we would include in the next um, study that the patient positioning might be even as good or um, as, as patient mobilization in, in certain patients. One of the um, things I, I mean, there's lots of things I loved about this paper. One of the things I liked, and for those uh, when you listening who get a chance, if, if anything, I, I, I encourage people to have a look at the the figure one in this paper because it really beautifully summarises the whole study. I think with the data sources of da data that you were uh, the data sources that you were using, the measures and the analysis that you were undertaking, and breaking that into both the effectiveness side and the implementation um, side. And um, so you could really look at whether there was success in implementing some of the components of the bundle and also, the, of course, the effectiveness of the bundle um, with regards to things like the incidence of, of um, pneumonia and inpatient mortality. And one of the other things in your paper, you, you sort of really beautifully describe the before and after, if you like, or the, the time series of 
of data around the process measures. So um, oral care dysphagia mobilization uh, and how they were looked and tracked with adherence over time. On reflection now, do you what do you think are the sort of determinants of the success of the the implementation? What do you think were the really critical things about um, getting good compliance and adherence to the uh, the intervention itself? So I think the, one of the the most important elements is what we mentioned before that the. The departments have a, a certain independence and accountability for what they were doing and ownership. And um, and the, the second uh, overall element was probably that the the qualitative inquiry, the results were always fed back to the the departments as ideas how they could improve over the time. So it wasn't like the typical uh, randomized perspective trial where you have to stick to the method all along and and the quality um, measure is that you don't change the intervention over the time. Here it was the contrary, it was like feeding back what you call formative uh, qualitative research. More specifically, uh, there were some some really interesting finding in the in the determinants for success. Uh, one being if the department was in, interested um, as a medical speci speciality into pneumonia, they did better. Also, if they perceived that their patients were at risk for such uh, pneumonia, so this this awareness and this alignment with their speciality uh, was important. Moreover, we found that teams that were architecturally, locally uh, close together uh, did better, which is interesting overall for, for uh, how a hospital is designed. So teams that are spread out over the hospital uh, in different wards, they, they have a hard time, apparently harder time to implement something and, and uh, the effort has to be uh, higher. And then um, also kind of complexity system thinking, um, uh, where you find leverages, uh, leverage points um, that for success is that the personality of the leader of the team, uh, the local team for intervention team, was really important if this person was a, a, a likable uh, person, if they were a finisher, if they were well implemented in, in the department. And that's something that might be neglected to choose uh, anyone to do it and not uh, pay really attention to who that person yeah, is. Yeah. I mean, how did you choose the leader of the team then? Were these people who volunteered within the department to take part in the research, so therefore they had an element of enthusiasm for it at the beginning? Or sometimes were you they told you're the team lead? Because we have link nurse um, programs all around the world, and sometimes you're told that you're the link nurse, and sometimes you're volunteered to be the link person. And um, there's an old uh, saying in the UK from when the Navy used to steal people, is one volunteer is worth 10 pressed men. Um, so, how did you choose the the, the team's components and the and the leaders? I'd be interested in that. Actually, we did not choose. Um, we had Excellent. these nine departments, and um, they were chosen 
by their department head or head nurse, we don't exactly know in some cases. Um, so it was not us and um, it was exactly how you explained. Some probably were chosen and others volunteered. Hmm. It'd be interesting to know if they then would have been a volunteer by the end of it, if they, you know, they're recognising what's going on. And, and, you know, and I know they were feeding back to you because there was really good communication because I've seen other work that you presented from this. Could you give an example of where they've said straight away, this isn't working for us, we need to change it, and here's an idea that we could implement, and that could then be cascaded to the others? One example was oral care in patients who could do oral care themselves. We heard quite at the beginning of our project that nurses saying, I don't tell, tell my adult patient he has to brush his teeth. He's old enough. I don't want to do that. Um, I don't feel comfortable doing that. So there we realized that we probably have to take another approach to address these patients. And we um, came up or together also with these departments team, we came up with the idea to put stickers on the mirrors in the bathroom, informing the patients that um, pneumonia, so that oral care or toothbrushing is not only important for their well-being, but also could prevent pneumonia. And mm. that was one um, example of formative approach. Brilliant. I love it. You know, today I was just talking to a consumer and I was asking him, exactly that question what would you like as a patient to help help focus you on on the importance of oral care and brushing your teeth while in hospital and you know it, it was quite simple because he, he just didn't understand the risks and he said if I, once i understood some of the risks then i'm more motivated to actually go and brush my teeth so i really like i really like that uh, that sort of simplicity of the of the message there that's great there is a nice story about the toothbrush. We uh, also decided then to um, give patients or to to produce a, a toothbrush with a, a slogan in it, uh, in, a, in a plastic wrap, and uh, distributed to patients who were admitted uh, in uh, as an emergency and didn't have the toothbrush with them. And at the same time, do some uh, awareness raising for the, the reason, as you just said. And uh, I have such a toothbrush now uh, with me. And when I give talks, I take it with me to show it uh, to everyone because it took us really two years to uh, implement this uh, toothbrush in our hospital. And I show it as an example that implementation is not so easy sometimes. There were... <laughs> many obstacles, uh, sessions, uh, people who had to agree to it and design it and so on. So it took really two years. Can we talk about some results now then? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, we have yeah. talked about results. Now, but, but in terms <laughs> well, of the, but no. the effectiveness. H hardness. Yeah, yeah, the effectiveness, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, what, was the, what, was, what was the um, main results with respect to the incidence of pneumonia and inpatient mortality? So um, the results regarding effectiveness of the bundle was that we over all nine departments, we had a reduction of NVHAP incidence rates from 1.4 to 0 0.9, which um, is a 31% reduction. Wow. That was really great. These are, yeah. these are uh, pneumonias per thousand patient days. Mm. Exactly. Mm. That's, a, that's a remarkable. Am I, am I come back to a question about um, 
the diagnosis of pneumonia in a minute, but but what about inpatient mortality? Because that was one of your other um, outcomes that you were looking at. So we did not see any um, statistically significant result in mortality. Probably that was what we expected because mortality, we know that about 30% of patients with NVHAP die in the hospitals, about half of them. So this is 15% overall because of NVHAP or in relation mm -hmm. to NVHAP. So probably we just did not have the power to, to see any um, results there. Did you think about or look at um, transfers to the ICU with patients who might have developed HAP on a ward? Um, was that something that you, you thought about at any point? Not during this study. We tried to um, um, quantify that in another project, but not mm. in this um, project that we, we published in Lancet ID now. I wondered also if you had any change in any change in prescribing. Were you know were there less antibiotics prescribed because you had less pneumonia? Because I've, I've, people have suggested in the UK there's less antibiotics used, and you actually get an associated reduction in C diff infections as well. Yes, so that would be a very interesting outpoint out um, come to look at, but we did not. Um, Maybe next okay. time. Maybe next time. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. we can still, we could still. Uh, you could look still go back, back and look. Because, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. There is something to be said about the, the whole, the end of the study, because our idea was to, to uh, let it run afterwards during the intervention phase much longer, but it was cut short by COVID that took all yeah. our efforts uh, in another direction. And we were really lucky to uh, still. Uh, be showing that the, the intervention was effective. I mean, because towards the end of the study, a few units had only just joined it, really, when, you know, when COVID hit. So actually, if you'd, you know, you did well to get a 30% reduction, really, with not everybody joining for a longer period of time, and that may have been much more significant had it run a bit more. So you were a bit unlucky, but in some ways lucky that the intervention seems to be so effective that even with a relatively short intervention period for some, you still got a result. You also say mm. you've got some correlation between how well people are implemented and the reduction. Could you just mention that as well? Because I've always felt that if you actually do things, they do tend to work rather than not doing them. Yeah, so we, we uh, out from the uh, qualitative data, the, the interviews, uh, we extracted um, a graduation, a, qual a quantitative measure, and uh, this implementation success measure uh, then correlated to the success in the departments. I want to go back to your definition of pneumonia just for a second, because this is such a difficult one for people based across the world. You use the ECDC definition for non-ventilator associated pneumonia. How, how, how did you find using that definition? Was it okay to use in the context of this trial, or would you want a variation of that? Yes. So. Um... With pneumonia surveillance, you always have this issue that um, the diagnostic criteria are not um, are objective or not 100% objective. We started in 2017 to do a, um, a continuous surveillance of NVHAP using the ECDC criteria. We have a semi-automated surveillance, so we have a computerized algorithm that selects us patients who 
then have to undergo manual review. Mm -hmm. We know that we are quite sensitive um, and we kept on using this ECDC criteria, which is a radiologic criteria, fever, um, leukocytosis or leukopenia and some respiratory signs and symptoms. Mm. And that's what we stick to knowing that it's um, not 100% objective. Yeah. yeah. Um, just on the, the algorithm that you mentioned, um, our other colleague on this podcast, Phil Russo's ears would have pricked up at that one because he's very much into some automation of surveillance of infections. Have you published um, that piece of work? Yes, we published this, the development and the validation of this semi-automated surveillance um, system some years ago. We might include that in our, on our website for readers so that they can um, have, a, have a read of that one as well. Um, now, I'm conscious of time, but I could talk all day. I, 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 need, to, I need to butt in, though. I just need to ask, because you're, you're <laughs> right that when you look at how what the difference between baseline implementation intervention for things like oral care didn't change much, although it did increase, but not significantly. But the one that jumps out to me is the bedside dysphagia screening. So it, it seemed like there was almost none going on before. And then, it, 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 so was that a result of people recognising that actually this is something we need to do or was it something more formally put in place? And do you think that's been maintained since? Yes, so this was the prevention measure that was not um, really newly implemented in seven of nine departments. Two already did some dysphagia screening due to their patient population they have. And others really um, implemented it um, from the scratch and I think and some even um, like said we do it in all our patients at admission we do it in all of them it, that's easy we don't um, select the patients who need the screening we just do it overall and that, uh, these departments still do that and I think that I really think that was one of the prevention measures that was more or less sustainably implemented um, and probably had a, a large effect because these patients, older patients, patients with neurologic diseases, they can be all over in the hospital, maybe having a surgery and so on. And and I think that's really important to identify them early and um, and do and act on on somebody who has a dysphagia. Great. Just maybe like a final question from me: If you were to do this study again. Or if you were to uh, give some advice to someone who's thinking about doing uh, a study uh, similar to this, would there be things you'd do differently or things that you would say, I'd love to do this next time, it would be great if someone could do this? Any any advice for for future, future work in this area? Maybe our bundle would look a bit different now after several years of um, also um, publications and, and things we learned. For example, we did a risk factor analysis in our patients of our hospital and we found out that one of the most important risk factors in for developing an NVHAP is um, having a feeding tube. Mm -hmm. So these patients, we kind of forgot a bit and we probably would now put uh, feeding tube management into the bundle. Mm, um, I would set the the goal of mobilization a bit higher than twice a day. Mm -hmm. And what I think is also very important is to um, do good pain management and 
still by preventing any sedative effect of, of medication. Mm -hmm. So would this you, would be a bit of an adapted bundle. Would you go higher on the oral care front? Would you want to up that from once a day or do you think you got your bang, bang for your buck at once a day? Maybe I would go to twice a day because that's what we learn as also as children in school <laughs> twice a day. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, the goal <laughs> of um, oral care. Maybe yeah. I would do twice a day. I think what we, we learned uh, regarding the monitoring of the adherence, uh, I would probably now register more the, quant the, the quantity of of the investment of the adherence, not only yes, no, but uh, but actually how many times or how well something is done. Because I think the the what is not shown in the number is that the uh, the awareness that uh, was increasing uh, made probably and and there is some indications in the qualitative data that people did it better or more often, which was not uh, really captured well. Well, it's um, fantastic um, having this chat with you both. Thank you so much for your time. Martin, is there anything else that you wanted to ask before? Um, I, I love this study. I've been you know, looking, reading the various papers coming out, and I think the local implementation teams was the, was the big thing for me, the feeding back of this doesn't work, we need to change this, and you know, we can't do that, or we, maybe can we do it in another way? And then being able to share that with all the other implementation teams. So I, I, th I thought that was really good rather than just saying, here's a protocol, start it on Tuesday and I'll be back in six months to see if it's worked, which is what I would have done 20 years ago, which explains why nothing ever worked. Um, so I, I was fascinated by it. So I'm, I know, I'm really grateful for the chance to chat to you both, yeah, Hugo and Aileen, because I've been following this one for quite a Absolutely. while. Thank, thanks again. Thank you for the occasion. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Pleasure is all ours. And uh, thanks, thanks everyone for listening to the latest edition of uh, Infection Control Matters.